Welcome to Pathway Church. We're at the end of a three-part series of sermons called Acts of Grace. Last week we looked at grace uh, poured out, uh, actually grace practiced, the need for us as Christians to be practitioners of grace. I challenged you with the thought last week that there's times when we do that very poorly. Two weeks ago we looked at grace received, we looked at the conversions of the radical rabbi and the Ethiopian eunuch. This morning we conclude this mini-series calling it Grace Poured Out. Grace Poured Out. And we're going to look particularly at the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This isn't something that we often talk about. There are, there are segments of evangelicals, and we're in the evangelical segment of Christianity, but there's segments of evangelical Christianity that talk about the Holy Spirit all the time. There's some Christian groups or religious groups that talk about God the Father or Jehovah, never talk about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. We, this morning, are going to talk about the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All have critical roles in our lives. Our key verse for this morning is Acts 10 verse 45. This was, the context of this verse was when Peter was ministering in the religious Roman's home, Cornelius' home, and the Spirit of God just descended on this, on this Gentile home, and they were so shocked. The people that went with Peter, they were so shocked that God's Holy Spirit would actually pour himself out over these Gentile people. And here's the verse, verse 45, and the believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the Spirit of because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. I want to remind you of a few things about me. Hopefully none of this comes as a surprise. I believe in the authority of God's word. I stand firmly on it. I believe that it is, it is true and it is right and it is our authority for life and practice. I believe in God's word. When I prepare a message, I, I do my very best to divide the word rightly, to be very careful that what I share with you is either my thoughts and I say so, or this is God's word and you better get it. <laughs> Paul, talking in the church at Ephesus, Luke records this in Acts chapter 20. He says, I do not want to shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I want it all. Amen? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want it all. I want to remind you, a few months ago, I told you that when, whenever we study a book like Acts, which is historical narrative, we have to differentiate between what's prescriptive and descriptive. There's a lot in Acts that Luke is just describing. That doesn't mean that God is prescribing it for us. There are some experiences that people have in the book of Acts that some people think, I have to have that experience. Well, if the context doesn't tell you that this is an experience for all Christians, then you have to just be very careful with that. Is, Paul, is, is, is Luke just describing the experience? Or he's actually prescribing the experience. 
So as we deal with the subject of the Holy Spirit, we, we need to be sensitive when we treat the Word of God in this context. We must distinguish between details that are historical and lessons that are eternal for us as believers. And so this morning, I'm going to tell you about me. When I told my son that I was doing this illustration, he said I should go to a, one of these party stores and buy a thick pair of room glasses and a long black wig, um, because this box is Wayne's World. <laughs> Wayne's World. So I want to, I want to tell you about, about Wayne's World. Imagine with me for a moment that everything that I have, everything I am, everything I ever will be is wrapped up in this box, okay? So then I'm gonna open this box. Here's another box. And this box is my, this box is my faith, my Christian faith. Now, now, whenever we do an illustration like this, there's always some time when it kind of breaks down and the kind of the logic doesn't fit and so just hang with me if you don't see any logical sequence here. If you think one box is too small than the other, just, just give me some poetic license this morning. But this, is, but this is my faith. For 40 years, 40 some years, my faith has driven my life. I've wanted nothing more. I haven't perfectly followed the Lord, but I've endeavored to. Since uh, 1978, this, this is... This is the most important thing. Everything encapsulates my faith. Everything is driven by my faith. Hopefully, I don't always do this perfectly. Hopefully, my decisions are driven always. My actions, my word, my speech, driven by my faith. So in this, my Christian faith is my Protestant faith. You see, in the Christian box, there's Greek, Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestants. Now, love me on this one, okay? I'm not one of those that believe that Greek Orthodox and Catholics are going straight to hell by virtue of definition. I just don't. I've got a friend who's a Catholic priest and he loves the Lord so much. Great servant. Um, just so happens that, that my segment of Christianity is Protestant. That's, this is my Protestant faith. Within my Protestant faith, there's all kinds of segments, divisions, denominations, theologies, ideas, conservative, liberal, happy, clappy, <laughs> calm, stoic. They're all within my Protestant faith, my evangelical faith. So this, this box represents my conservative evangelical faith. I'm not talking about politics, I'm talking about how I interpret scripture, my stand on social issues. I tend to be conservative, conservative evangelical. Believe Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. Salvation by faith alone. That's, that's this box. 
Then I get to another box. This box is my theology. Okay, this is my theology. I'm conservative, Protestant, Christian, and I have a theology. All of you have a theology. Theology is the study of God. There's different ideas out there on the study of God. Different spectrums. This is, this is my theology. Okay, you with me? That's my God. I'm Christian, Protestant, conservative, evangelical. I have a theology which defines my God. This is God to me. In God, we have God the Son. We have God the Father, and we have God the Holy Spirit, okay? That's Wayne's world. So this morning, we're talking about God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. What one Bible scholar said is sometimes the forgotten person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to open up my box of the Trinity. Dare we do that? Maybe, maybe we should close this in this church. Right? Do we have to keep this box closed? Can we let the Holy Spirit out? <laughs> Are you prepared? We open the Holy Spirit. What do we have? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings conviction. Jesus said the Spirit would convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, when you respond to that conviction, that judgment, and open your life to God, the Spirit comes in and you are saved. You don't earn it, you don't deserve it. The Spirit does the work. You just respond. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. It's not your job to make someone feel guilty. <laughs> I know we think we, it is. <laughs> it's not. He's resident. When we invite Christ into our lives, the Holy Spirit takes residence in our lives. Romans 8, 9 says, The Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. The Holy Spirit is resident in our lives. What else is the Holy Spirit? He's counselor. The Holy Spirit is counselor. Jesus said in John 14, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The word in the Greek for counselor is parakletos, which means someone that comes alongside. I like that image of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is there alongside me, in me, alongside me, all day long. He's the paraclete, parakletos, the counselor. What else do we have in our box? Holy Spirit is a teacher. He's the revealer of truth. Jesus said in John 25, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, and I'm paraphrasing, that you cannot honestly, earnestly say the words, Jesus is Lord, unless the Holy Spirit enables you. The Holy Spirit is the gift giver. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 lists the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He gives us gifts. He expects us to exercise those gifts. The Holy Spirit is the fruit producer. Galatians 5, the gifts of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Holy Spirit develops these fruits in us. But then the Holy Spirit isn't just the fruit developer, he's also the fruit harvester. And he will come to you and want you to use that gift of patience. Use that gift of long-suffering. Use that gift of love. The Holy Spirit is the fruit producer. The Holy Spirit is the empowerer. He empowers Luke 24, 49, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Have you ever had an experience as a Christian, maybe a confrontation with someone, or a time of witnessing, and afterwards you look back and said, well, where did that come from? Where did my thoughts come from? Where did my boldness come from? I was afraid, but yet I had this boldness. The Holy Spirit empowers us. The Holy Spirit is healer. Isaiah 53 verse 5, by his stripes we are healed. The work that God does inside of us, healing us, setting us free, giving us joy, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a lot more. Several years ago, I heard somebody speak. His name was Tony, Tony Campolo. He passed away in 2013. And back in the late 90s, the early 2000s, I heard him speak a couple of times. Very strong, lively speaker. He was a sociology professor, a strong evangelical. Some people classified him as the most prominent person on the evangelical left. It's kind of... I'm not going to go there. <laughs> when I think of evangelical, I think right, but a phenomenal speaker. And uh, he, he was used in college campuses a lot. And Campus Crusade invited him to speak on this one college campus. And he said after his talk, a lady came up to him holding a crippled baby with braces on his legs. And she said to him, God told me you were going to heal my baby. And Tony, not wanting to miss an opportunity to serve the Lord, took the baby and some of the campus crusade guys into a side room, and they laid hands on the baby, and they prayed for the baby. And Tony said, the presence of God just filled that room in a way that he's never experienced it like that before. It just filled the place. It was palpable. He was convinced that that baby was going to be healed. The baby wasn't healed. He said it shook him. God's presence was so powerful in that room. Several years later, Tony was speaking at another school. And after the service, a woman came up to him and said, do you remember me? He said, yes, I prayed. Well, we prayed for your baby. How is he doing? 
She pointed to a kid standing close to him. You prayed. God healed him. But Tony said, he wasn't healed. How did it happen? What happened? She said, we went home that night, and as I was putting him to bed, he started crying because the braces on his legs were too tight. So we, so we loosened the braces a little bit. The next night, we put him to bed again, and he started crying again because the braces on his legs were too tight. So we loosened the braces a little bit. She said that happened for about an entire month. The legs were straightening little by little by little, and he was healed. Well, Tony went the next week and had lunch with a friend of his, a theologian friend, somebody who's got all of his theology figured out and, and, and was telling Tony the story. I mean, Tony was telling his friend the story and his friend said to him, well, Tony, that's a nice story, but my theology doesn't allow for something like that to happen. So what this person had done is that he had taken his theology as a Christian, studied the scriptures and Protestantism, and he had put a lid on his theology. And he, his theology wouldn't allow for healing like that to happen. I know this opens the door to some... uh, precarious uh, thinking. I'm not suggesting for a moment that we just open up. But what I am challenging you this morning is don't put a lid on your theology. Don't put a lid on your God. Don't put a lid on the Holy Spirit. Based on one extreme, we open the box and we allow anything and everything. And then we believe everything and we allow everything and no one is ever wrong. And sadly, when we stand for everything, we end up standing for what? Nothing. I'm not there. That's not me. That's not us as a church. The other spectrum, the other extreme of that spectrum is that we tend to put God in a neatly little package box We even might label it God. We put a little ribbon on it and we give it our stamp of approval, approved for me. And our Christianity becomes comfortably livable, completely predictable, and thoroughly boring. We take the Lion of Judah and turn him into a nice little cuddly lamb who won't hurt or offend anyone. In this context, I love what Dorothy Sayers says, and I think I shared this with you a couple of years ago. Dorothy Sayers says, we have very efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah, certifying him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious ladies. (laughs) But yet my Bible tells me, and Paul paraphrases the book of Isaiah, In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has promised for those who love him. If we believe that, we're not going to take God and put a box on him and wrap him up 
We cannot tame God or reduce God to our personal preferences. There's an interesting dialogue in one of C.S. Lewis's books. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. It's a fictitious story about an imaginary land called Narnia. And in Narnia, there is the king called Aslan and the witch. And the stories in the Chronicles of Narnia is about happenings between Aslan and the witch. And, and, and there's three kids who, who discover the land of Narnia. And they get to know some of uh, the animals in Narnia, and one of them is Mr. Beaver. And C.S. Lewis writes an interesting dialogue between Mr. Beaver and Susan. Follow with me on the screen as I read this. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. Aslan's the name of the king. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Do you want a God that's safe? Then you're going to put him in a box and you're going to close the lid. Do you want a God that you can tame? Then you're going to put him in a box and you're going to close the lid. Reading on this topic, I found this on a website called Rediscover the Bible. When it comes to the God of the Bible, the same is very true. God is absolutely a good God. But that does not imply that he is a soft or tame God that can be trained to our command. No, the Lion of Judah is not a tame lion at all. God is beyond my understanding, greater in power than I can fathom and beyond my ability to control. He is not a tame lion. At the same time, that wild lion has a love in his eyes that is wilder, deeper, and more free than any other love I know. And the love and acceptance I read in those eyes whenever I approach him makes it more than worth the risk. Still I know that I am approaching a God whose wisdom and understanding is greater than mine. Though I won't always understand, I can always trust. He may not be tame, but he is good. He is good. When we get hung up on our theology, and I, and I don't, don't misread me, I love theology. <laughs> I've got graduate degrees in theology. That doesn't mean that I've got it all figured out. I, 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 I know my theology. <laughs> but I also recognize that I serve a God that is big and awesome and almighty there's a song that we used to sing as kids, how big is God, how big and wide is vast domain, to begin to tell his lips can only try. He's big enough to rule this mighty universe. And then what do we do with this God? We define him in our theology. I'm not saying throw out our theology. Our theology is important. Our doctrine is important. Our statement of faith is important. But when we have the opinion that we have got it all, that our theology is now complete, our God, our neatly little package of God is complete, we're gonna miss out on the tame, on the lion that cannot be tamed, but the lion that's good, who loves us, who's precious. John Piper, 
says the work of the Holy Spirit is like a pointer. He points to the love of the Father. He points to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we focus too much on the pointer, we're going to miss what's been pointed at. John Piper tells this illustration of a mother sitting at a window with a little one-year-old and they're having a little cuddle and uh, a beautiful bird flies across the window and lands on a branch and then the mother points and says, look, look at that beautiful bird. Piper says, the one-year-old isn't going to look at the bird. The one-year-old is going to focus on the finger, on the hand, what's pointing. Sometimes in our theology, we focus everything on, on God the Father or we focus everything on God the Son or, or God the Holy Spirit or we focus everything on me or on my woes and what we might miss is the bigger picture of God the Father, the Son and Holy Spirit. I want to pull up a couple of images of a little church in Greece. This is the church called St. Theodora Chapel. I have actually been there. And what you can see in there is that there are trees growing out of its roof. And what you can see in that front right corner, there's a little trickle of water that bubbles up from there. I have drunk water from there. This is about two and a half hours south of Corinth. My sister lives about two hours from this church. I was visiting her a number of years ago, and she took me to this church. The story of this church is there was this young lady in the 10th century called Theo, Theodora, and she was attacked by bandits. And in her dying breath, she prayed, Lord, turn my hair into trees that will give people shade. Turn my body into a church that people can worship in, turn my spilled blood into a stream that people can drink from. Now this is where the story or the legend kind of diverts because there's some accounts that say that in the honor of Theodora and her prayer, they built this church. And then miraculously trees, these huge trees started growing out of the roof. Some others say no, that church just suddenly appeared. But the fascinating thing is that when we went and visited this church, there were hundreds and hundreds of people in this little church. It's probably 12 feet wide by about 20 feet long. And in Greek Orthodox, they light candles as symbols of their prayers. And people were going in and lighting candles. And we brought our blanket and our picnic. And there's a big um, field just next to it. And we put our blankets down and dozens of other families did. And there were some vendors selling little trinkets of this church, making some money. And as I sat there, watching these people come and go, lighting their candles, drinking the water, filling buckets with water, my skeptical, cynical mind was saying, maybe some astute farmer years ago came up with a story, built a little church, and now he's selling little trinkets. <laughs> maybe there was a Theodora centuries ago, and maybe that was her prayer, and villagers did build this church. Now trees growing out of its roof. But then I also thought that if these individuals 
come to this church and hear the story. And they connect with Almighty God in a genuine, powerful, personal way. I say build little churches like that all over the world. But you know what? <laughs> Some will say my theology doesn't allow for something like that to happen. And I say how sad. This morning, we're going to look at two passages briefly. Saul's conversion, we're going to go back to that just briefly. Then we're going to go back to a couple of verses in Acts chapter 8. Saul, the radical rabbi, was on his way to the city of Damascus, literally carrying letters that were going to give him authority to persecute Christians. And on that road, God met him. The Holy Spirit met him. Jesus met him. And Paul had an amazing experience. Light flashed. There was sound. There were voices. Jesus spoke to Paul. Paul, uh, or Saul became Paul. And he was blinded for three days. He must have been led into Damascus. We don't know what he did for those three days, sitting in silence, wondering what on earth had just happened. And then God told a Christian in Damascus to go and talk to Paul. I'm reading from verse 17, Acts chapter 9. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. <laughs> what an awesome experience. Saul the persecutor got saved and became Paul the apostle. Paul became a new creation. When you get saved, when you gave your heart to the Lord, we believe that that salvation is instantaneous. And that's the spiritual thing. That's the God thing. God does it. When we open our lives to the God wooing us and the Holy Spirit convicting us and we're sincere, God judges that prayer to be sincere and God saves you in that moment. In that moment, Paul was saved. We don't know when. Was it on the road to Damascus? Was it when he was blinded? Was it when Ananias came and laid hands on him? We don't know, but what we do know is that Paul was radically saved. And he had this radical experience. When we are saved, the Holy Spirit enters our lives. That moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit takes residence in our lives. And then the Holy Spirit starts working and drawing us and leading us, and discipling us, and nurturing us. The Holy Spirit directs our paths. One of the dangers in our Christian walk, when we read a story like Paul's, is to think, I want a Damascus Road experience. I want that experience. I want blinding light. I want to hear an audible voice. And when we don't, if we, if we yearn after that too much and we don't have those kinds of sensational experiences, then the devil's going to use that to tell us there's something wrong with you, something wrong with your spirituality, something wrong with your God. <laughs> Paul's experience was Paul's experience. 
and the Holy Spirit working in my life and pouring his life into me is a unique relationship between me and the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to have my experiences. I don't want to have your experiences. Our yearning must be for God, not the experience. Let me say that again. Our yearning must be for God, not the experience. Paul was undoubtedly filled with the Holy Spirit, but yet his life was rough. It was tough, it was difficult. He spoke about thorns in the flesh that he prayed and God refused to remove them. He was persecuted. He went hungry, shipwrecked. He had difficult times. At times he ran for his life. He was beaten and whipped. I don't want those experiences. (laughs) He had inner turmoil. You read about it in Romans 7. He had this inner turmoil at times. I'm I'm, I'm just going to read a couple of select verses from Romans 7. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I do not do the good that I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, I do. Are you following me? This I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. There's times the Holy Spirit makes us feel miserable. As we are drawn along this path and we've got stuff going on. And we're going to sometimes cry out to God and say, Lord, I'm a wretched man. Who will rescue me? Who can help me? Who will, who will deliver me? But we have to realize, folks, that we cannot manipulate God. We cannot conjure up some kind of a spiritual experience. We have to let God be God. We cannot buy his work. We cannot buy an experience. This leads us to Acts chapter 8, Simon the Sorcerer. Philip is in the region of Samaria. And Philip is preaching the gospel and people are, are getting saved and there's a man there called Simon. He's a, he's a magician of sorts, a sorcerer. And this is his story. Actually, John, uh, John Piper says that Acts 8 both has an invitation and a warning associated with it. Uh, we will deal with those um, in just a little bit. Acts chapter 8 verse 6 And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon, this is Simon the sorcerer, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. So Simon Simon the sorcerer got saved, he got baptized. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
I want you to note the progression. Now, now, this is one of those descriptive times when the progression doesn't necessarily have to happen. Well, this happened to him, and then this happened, and this happened, and therefore it ought to happen in my life just like that, just like not necessarily. But in this instance, the, the people were saved. Simon the sorcerer was one of them. They were baptized. Evidently, their testimony was good enough or sure enough that the, the leaders baptized them, but yet there wasn't an outpouring of the Holy Spirit yet. And when Peter and John came and laid hands on them, there was an experience. There was an outpouring of God's Spirit. Look at verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So there's this powerful move of the Holy Spirit. In verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, (laughs) saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. (laughs) It's no surprise that somebody who had had a life of being a magician, a sorcerer, doing tricks, would gravitate to something like this but he gets it all wrong. Peter rebukes him. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I'm convinced that Simon the sorcerer was saved He just had a whole lot of growing to do. It's one of those instances you take him aside and say, hey dude, (laughs) you can't buy God. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. You can't buy some experience. You can't manipulate your surroundings in order to kind of invoke some kind of a miraculous happening. Peter rebukes him. So this leads me to what John Piper calls an invitation and a warning. I want to read to you what John Piper wrote. He says, Acts 8 is a warning for people who are seeing or want to see supernatural signs and wonders. It's not an indictment of signs and wonders. But it is a warning that a person can think and feel about signs and wonders in a way that is very destructive. The road to Damascus experience was a powerful experience. It is one of those signs and wonders. When you yearn after an experience like that, it can be extremely destructive in your life. When we yearn for something like this, when when we yearn for something that somebody else had, an experience that somebody else had, we actually do harm to our faith. Hebrews 11.1 says, Now faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. When we yearn for signs and wonders, our faith ceases being a conviction of things not seen, but a demand for things to see. I want to take a few minutes and share my spiritual journey. By the way, we're going to do more of this next week for Father's Day. Um, Norman, if you're watching, hello. (laughs) 
It's my dad. I was a young Christian, hadn't been a Christian for more than about a year in my church. I was going to a little church, and the church was going through some turmoil and some leadership issues. And right around then, the late 70s, the early 1980s, there were these movements sweeping South Africa, actually sweeping a lot of the evangelical world. And there were signs and wonders. And people were talking about them. And have you had this experience? Have you had that experience? And my young faith yearned for something like that and actually started going to different services and talking to people and, 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 and I would pray alone in my room and, 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 and I would try, try, and, try and have some experience. And it went on for about a year, two years. And then I just sensed the Lord tell me, say, Wayne, you need to seek me. Seek first. Christ. Seek first the Lord. And if in my sovereignty I decide to give you an awesome experience, if I decide one day to just pour my spirit down upon this church in the middle of worship, that's for me to do. And, and, and I didn't settle into a, 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 a sellout comfort. I settled into a realization in my spirit that I want to seek God and seek him only. So about 12, 14 years later, I was married. Claire and I had moved to Pretoria. I was pastoring a church, and the church had a daycare. And one of the parents whose kids came to the daycare, his name was Roy. Roy was an on-fire Pentecostal. And Roy and I became friends. And we would dialogue a lot, and we would talk, and we would pray together. There was this little hill next to our neighborhood. One time we went up and sat on the hill and prayed over our neighborhood. And Roy attended this huge church down the road. I mean, this huge mega, mega church. Right then, right around that time, the Toronto blessing was sweeping the world. Uh, in January 1994, at a church in Toronto, Canada, the Holy Spirit just descended on that church, and it was an incredible experience, and, 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 and some manifestations, and some experiences of people, and then word started spreading, um, and, and the, what became known as the Toronto Blessing started spreading over the evangelical world, especially the Pentecostal evangelical world. And it got to Roy's church, and they were enjoying this blessing. And Roy wanted nothing more for me than to experience the Toronto Blessing. And he wasn't ugly about it. We would dialogue, and, 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 but, but he was kind of urging me, nudging me. One day we were standing outside my gate. He had come and visited, and we were standing at my gate. And he said to me, Wayne, he said, my Christianity is like a color TV. Yours is black and white. <laughs> which, which is kind of a sad judgment, right, on my faith. But I wasn't mad with the guy. Uh, and I said, to him, I said to him, Roy, and I forget my exact words, but it was something along these lines. I said, Roy, I love God, and I know God loves me. I've got an assurance of my, of my faith, assurance of salvation. And if God chooses to give me an experience that I, that's out of the ordinary, then that's fine. If he doesn't, then that's fine too. And if that's a black and white TV, then I'm pretty cool with that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. 
We need to yearn after Almighty God. We need to yearn after the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need to yearn for the blood of Jesus to be poured over us and in us and through us. We need to yearn for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but we need to avoid the traps that we dictate to God how that experience should be or shouldn't be. That's the warning, the invitation, and I'm wrapping this up, the invitation is to just come and surrender. Come and surrender. The salvation act that God poured out on you happens in an instant. The life he draws you to will take years and years and years, and we will never get to that place where there's no more growth to do, no more yearning along the path of our discipleship on this side of eternity. And the Holy Spirit is inviting you this morning to come deeper with him. Invite the Holy Spirit to pour his spirit on you, to invade every part of your being, to fill your life, to take those struggles that Paul spoke about in Romans 7 and bring you to Romans 8 where Paul says, now there is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. The call this morning is for you to, re- for you to surrender. So I want to go back to my boxes. We're almost done. And forget how I labeled these previously, okay? Because that's, I want you to do a mental shift. We're going to call this box God. I want you to look at these boxes. And I want you to label them. Don't, don't call out, but just label in your mind from here down. Just look at a box and say, whatever it is, that's my money I struggle with. That's my mother-in-law I struggle with. That's this issue that's a secret that no one knows about. That's a past hurt I haven't been set free from yet. And we're going to take all of this, my self-esteem issues. You don't know the years that I've had self-esteem issues. We're going to put it in the box. The need to forgive those that have hurt me, bruised me. My tendency to be sarcastic, to be cutting in my comments. What else is there? Watch too much TV. That person that irritates me. And these, my time, my talent, my treasure. Am I gonna put a lid on this? No. Why? Because I wanna take things out? Hopefully not. But I'm not gonna put a lid on this because I want God to do more than I can ever think or imagine in my life and I want him to do this with every part of my life. I don't want to limit him. 
I don't want to dictate to him. I don't want to ever come to him and say, God, my theology doesn't allow for something like that to happen. Now, if it's clearly contrary to Scripture, then yes, we've got grounds. But if it's not contrary to Scripture, say, Lord, I'm open. Do in my life, pour your life on me, however you choose to do that. In other words, we're all in, right? I surrender. I surrender. I surrender all to him. Let him decide how that manifests itself. You yearn for him. You invite the Holy Spirit to fill you. Let's pray. This morning the worship team is going to lead us in a song where you will be invited to speak to the Lord through the song. And you will be invited to say the words, I surrender. If you do not sincerely mean that, I urge you do not say it. Do not sing it. But if you mean it this morning, if you want the Holy Spirit to fill your life, if you're open to God doing amazing things in your life, unchaining you from things that you've been bound by for years, reconciling relationships that you thought were dead, giving you joy that you've never had before, then sing out. Sing out the words, I surrender. I surrender. Come to the altars if you need somebody to pray with on your left or pray alone on your right. But let's stand together and worship the Lord. Speak to me now. 
benediction I want to read over you as a closing prayer it comes from Ephesians 3 and 2 Corinthians 13 I'm going to read this slowly and I want you to just allow the Holy Spirit to use these words to minister to you let's pray now to him who is able to do more 
abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Finally, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. God bless you.